Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a very unusual and uh, high-profile guest today, Wolfgang Fengler. He's the World Bank's lead economist in finance, competitiveness, and innovation. Uh, He's natively from Germany. He's been a staff member for the World Bank for more than 18 years, and he's lived in four continents, North America, working at World Bank's headquarters in Washington, D.C., and then in Asia as a senior economist in the Indonesia office, and then Africa, where he was the lead economist in Nairobi, and then finally Europe. Um, he's at uh, the new World Bank's hub in Vienna. So we're going to talk about uh, Wolfgang's work. Thanks for coming. How are you doing? Pleasure to be with you, Richard. Thanks. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what's, uh, at the World Bank, what, what do you do? I mean, I, I know a lot of people have heard of the World Bank, but I don't know if very few people, I'm sure, know what the World Bank does and especially what you do there. Great. Well, thanks, Richard. It's great to have a chance to talk about our work at the World Bank. The World Bank um, is, in a simple terms, you could say it's like the um, it's like the UN for economic and social issues. Um, and um, as the name, so we in that sense we are global, like the United Nations or like other global institutions. Almost every country is a member of the World Bank, and we have offices in more than 100 countries, and so we are worldwide, as, as our name says. But also, second, um, as is our name. We are a bank, so we give, we're not just uh, there for giving out grants or just for charity, but we, um, we, cre- we have engagement and give credit um, to countries, uh, emerging markets, but also poorer countries, but they get uh, our loans or our credits to very favorable conditions. And the World Bank, in addition to giving loans for development, that's basically our mandate to help advance development in the world and to end poverty, which we'll talk also about in a minute, but also to, to transfer some of the key, the knowledge uh, that we have collected globally, not just through countries like Germany and the US, but also many other countries. So use the example, I lived in Indonesia, so many of the lessons that Indonesia learned were actually applicable to another country I lived in, which is Kenya. And the World Bank facilitates that knowledge transfer across the world. And that's why I think it has also that, um, that, that not just the knowledge or that re- uh, reputation to be a global player. We give loans that are, you know, um, sizable, but they're still a, a small portion compared to what the loans that Citibank or any other normal commercial banks could out, uh, give out. So in our case, it's a combination of the, the global reach, the knowledge we have and the, the loans, that the projects we can mobilize or implement based on that, um, that experience we have. I personally have the luxury I can walk across those uh, sectors that I just mentioned, the areas of World Bank engagement. I'm leading a number of projects, large loans, including one now that we have in Kazakhstan, but also did similar things in, in the Balkans, in Kenya, in Indonesia. We have loans that are going straight to the budget for structural reform, but also concrete loans for schools, roads, uh, hospitals, uh, health systems, uh, particularly topical in the current situation. But uh, in Kazakhstan, I'm working on a big digital 
operation. At the same time, we do a number of studies and, and research and analysis, especially on the data economy, on digital transformation, on data models. And that's, I think, how we got to know each other because I wrote this piece also, Data, the um, some of the ultimate frontier or weapon to fight poverty. So um, is it your main goal to help fight poverty around the world? Or like if you were to encapsulate what you wish could happen and what you're working towards, what is that? Yes, if, if it is just to be summarized in a few words, it is a, a dream to end poverty and working towards a world free of poverty. If you walk into the World Bank's headquarters in Washington, D.C., you see exactly that at the entrance, that our dream is a world free of poverty. And that's, you know, what every, I think, staff member would work towards in whatever function. What, what is poverty defined as? I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not meaning to be a, a pain or a stickler, but, mm. you know, what does it mean to end poverty? Like, how would you know that you've accomplished the goal, even in a small area? And that's a perfect, actually, it's a very important question, Richard. You're not at all a stickler, because if we don't have a common understanding or definition of what we aim to get towards, then it'll get very confusing. I think part of the problems we're having are noises that we don't have a common sense. So um, the World Bank has a definition that the UN took over that every country in the world agreed on, um, which is a definition of extreme poverty. So I'm emphasizing this because it sounds extremely low for somebody in Germany or in, in the US. The definition is $1.90 spending per day per person in what's called the purchasing power parity of 2011. Sounds a bit complicated, but roughly it's $2 per day, which um, in, if you compare, if you think of, of poorer countries, it's, uh, it's still very little, but it's much more than many most people had in historically. And that's basically the definition of extreme poverty. Again, if you have a family of, of, of four, then it would be $8 with a bit of inflation, roughly $10 a day today. That uh, would be that threshold that the world said wants to get to zero people by the, by the year 2030. And the World Bank was the institution that spearheaded that movement towards that goal. So, okay. So the goal would be to get the minimum amount of money that anyone in the world is taking in every day is $10? $10 for a family. So it's only two dollars, oh. roughly, around two dollars a day. And um, and again, in in some countries, also there's differences of course. Countries, some countries are cold. The climate they need a bit more for heating. Countries in in the US or Germany have the poverty um, number or threshold is much higher. Sometimes you have a relative number. But then again, that's as you said before, is a different definition of poverty. If you think of somebody who is struggling, that's a challenge in the US or in Germany. But somebody really doesn't have enough food to eat, not enough shelter. To, uh, to cover himself enough clothes to have uh, to, to put on, then you get this number of, of roughly $2 a day per person or 8 to $10 a day per family. So, I mean, I, I don't hear grants. I don't hear giving money away. I hear loans. So what, what, have, what has the World Bank learned that, you know, what's the right and the wrong way to help a group of people so they actually do succeed? I think the ultimate lesson or insight is that you you don't impose your good ideas on others, but you help those who have good ideas to implement them. And uh, you become basically a facilitator um, of, of good ideas and, and programs. And then and, and these can be quite different across countries or across points in time. And the World Bank, by the way it's organized, and almost everybody in the world being a shareholder of the World Bank, works traditionally as a default through governments. And it's actually a big belief also that 
you need to make governments and governance better. And if you do help that, then then many other elements will come almost automatically. And uh, but we also have a private sector arm called IFC, and uh, is part of our group that directly invests in companies and helps also them to get them off the ground and and to scale. And as you indicated, maybe one additional point on the loans. We don't have just loans; we also have grants, but. Uh, it's part of also uh, our experience that it's actually helpful to help create credit markets in countries. Uh, some of these loans are very uh, either zero interest or very little interest. So even poor countries, the successful poor countries, you know, from Vietnam to some Eastern European countries, they actually didn't have much difficulty to paying these these very super cheap loans back in, if they invest the money well. But other countries had some challenges, and that's why there was also a phase of debt relief. It didn't just concern the World Bank or the IMF, but with many other players as well. But but yeah, it's basically in the end to work with, in countries and with countries and to help governments get better at their job, get better at uh, educating children, get better at um, vaccinating children, get better at uh, providing health now, healthcare in this, in this emergency and in any other situation. Create roads, create the right roads, uh, create energy systems. So those are some of the big issues and often you don't have enough capital and money also to finance these big projects, um, as well as smaller projects that are scaling, um, because countries are being perceived too risky to invest for a private investor. That's where the World Bank then plays a role. And as I said, we have, as I, live, I lived in Kenya, we had like, more, we now have more than 200 people in Kenya. We have more than that in Indonesia. So we have a really deep presence in these poor countries also. Um, when you talk about the loans being favorable, I mean, I know it depends on the situation, but what are typical loan amounts? What are interest rates, payback periods? You know, can you give me a, a general feeling? Right. The, um, so the loan amount depends very much on the size of the country. Uh, so it can go up to very high numbers, more, you know, a billion or more. Um, kind of, I'm working now in Kazakhstan that uh, there was a billion dollar loan and working on a $500 million loan. Uh, Indonesia had similar sizes, but also worked in very small states like in the Comoro Islands in, in next to Madagascar. They had a $6 million loan um, and that could also go, go smaller. So it depends very much on the size of the country and what's called our lending envelope, which is determined by, by in the end, our board, but it's influenced by a mathematical approach to this, which is a formula that uh, gives you an indication of how much money you can lend. It's reasonable to, to lend or to give to a country. Also considered, considering equity issues that we want to also you know, treat every country proportionately equally. So that's the, the first, so the loan amount can vary a lot, but um, obviously if you give mega loans then you do fewer. And Kazakhstan will do very little this year because you do two or three big projects and sometimes you may decide to do fewer um, smaller ones. Second, in terms of the, um, the, the interest rate for the poor countries um, that have less than probably $1,000 per capita income per year, which is roughly $3 a day, right? Before we talk about $2, the very poor, so this is $3 for the average person. They get basically interest-free uh, loans and sometimes even a big portion of grants. So it's basically um, 0 to 0.5% interest and you pay it back then over 30 years typically. That's a typical... Uh, loan, and that's also part of what the World Bank is somehow known for, that we have long-term lending so governments can engage with us and have the security that we are there for the long term, they can bear back over a long time, and then maybe other private sector players can piggyback on that. There are some loans that would go to now, say, emerging markets, Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia, um, Russia, other countries, Pakistan, 
where um, where the the um, interest rate depends a lot on the global interest rate, but we typically have the global interest rate minimum, which is called LIBOR, it's the London Interbank, uh, Interbank official rate, and then we have 50 to 70 basis points on on top of that. So if the global interest rate roughly is a bit more than two percent, then it would be three percent for a, uh, one of those emerging markets. Now it's much lower because um, the interest rates are so low. But some of those countries are still have a, a re, you know need to pay much more money if they go to the private market, and that's why it's more favorable to come to the World Bank because we will be much cheaper and we give advice in addition to that. So what what's the requirements to receive a loan? What are they based on? You know, what do you have to start a business? Do you have to show evidence that a project is reaching milestones? Yeah. So every country in the World Bank group that's a member and that has some minimum paid in initial capital, um, just a member has a certain allocation that it can in principle draw from. So there's some type of uh, of, uh, of opportunity to to access the money. Now, um, the, the devil is always in the detail because if you say you have a country and again, a country I work on say Indonesia, um, assuming you could lend uh, $3 billion over three years, that's the envelope. The World Bank team together with the government decides what the money should be used for. And there should be a logic, should be a certain strategy. It should not just be, let's put a power plant somewhere because Somebody feels like that. No, so it needs to make make sense. A to put this example, which is a not, not realistic example, to put a certain uh, certain energy consumption structure in in a country, and then to put all the money in that, which is unlikely. You would uh, have a good mix of engagement. It also depends on so many factors. It depends where the government need the money, where others already putting in the money. What can the World Bank be useful? So all of those uh, insights will come into consideration when you structure the strategy. So assume you have a strategy done, everybody agrees, certain portion for certain sectors. Now let's go to $500 million foreign education loan because that's what was agreed. So then um, this loan that uh, can be done in different ways, um, can be done just as you just said, which would be a typical what's called a results-based approach that you have milestones. You don't micromanage every pencil the government pays, but you worry a lot how they procure the pencil payments. And if they have an efficient way to make it more, more cheaper, quicker, um, cleaner in the system, and, it's, and you can procure a certain amount of pencil over a certain time in a, in, on a certain price, then you just transfer a certain part of, of that expenditure that the government has taken. But then in these type of loans, we have actually much many more important, bigger reforms that have to do with teacher training, teacher allocation, uh, class size, making sure that Good teachers get rewarded if they go to the poor regions in Indonesia. So a lot of those uh, systematic adjustments that, that countries need, uh, in this case, to make sure that every child in Indonesia has access to education. And then a last point, which is important to understand, uh, although we are the World Bank and we have a substantial amount of resources, we still are in countries like Indonesia, many emerging markets, just a small part of the total pie not because of many other players that are also part of the mix, but because the Indonesians have a lot of money themselves. And so they may spend 90, 95% more on education than the World Bank does. And so the trick will be uh, the biggest success is if the World Bank money helps actually make the government money be spent better along the lines I just uh, explained. And that's what, again, is fascinating about the job because you not just think of your own little project that may do a lot of great, do a lot of great things, 
but it wouldn't help the country if the overall system doesn't get better, in this case, say the education budget system. So those would be a way. And then the, the loan would be the project typically would, would run over five years. Um, and there would be adjustments along the way. There'll be what's called supervision um, every few months. And uh, because we have so much presence in the country, it's also, you know, we have almost regular, not daily, but at least weekly meetings with the key counterparts to understand how things are going. And also that some of the key transfer, money transfer flows can then also be unblocked if it's warranted. Because in this case, if you have a $500 million loan to education in Indonesia, we typically would not spend all the money upfront, but it would go in certain, certain portions, depending on the milestones that have been achieved. Any projects that really capture your attention that you thought were, I don't know, just very ambitious and you know that, that came to fruition and that you're proud that you helped fund or work on? Yeah, well, one of the um, uh, the biggest thing, and actually it reminds me of the in a different way of the global crisis today, was I was in Indonesia when the tsunami hit. And it was clearly one of the biggest uh, traumatic experiences that I went through my professional time. And there, um, the the international community put together a um, multi-million dollar, um, yeah, almost a billion dollar trust fund, and that leveraged a lot of the government's money. That was more than a billion and many other partners. And there, if you look now at Aceh, which was the most affected by the tsunami, not just in Indonesia, but in the whole world, more affected than any part of India, any part of Sri Lanka, more than 140,000 people died in, in the tsunami in Aceh. And if you go there now, you see actually, I wouldn't say a flourishing place, but a pretty stable, um, yeah, semi-flourishing emerging market location. I still have some issues, but actually as a, as a result of the reconstruction of the government, governments, oh, in that sense, um, you know, foresight, uh, peace was also uh, being created with this, uh, with, with, with the region that was initially in conflict. And so that's um, still something. And if I'm connecting back to the, the officials of the time, which with whom I'm still in close touch, and some of the colleagues, that was still one of my most um, exciting experience. And there may be just to, to add to this, um, there it was also the, the key element that my team uh, contributed to was not uh, just that there was money that was made available, which was critical, uh, because the needs were everywhere. There was needs in schools, in the hospitals, in uh, roads, uh, in fisheries. Everybody needed something. The trick was how do you get quite a strategy so it step by step gets better, and how do you allocate the money after say six to 12 months, because initially everybody rushed in, everybody provided emergency services, there was lots of bottlenecks as a result of too much uh, confusion almost. And then guess what, where the money went? The money went for very good intentions, went a lot to the capital of that region, but also it went to health and education. That's where the NGOs went. There were, were all the, the NGOs from the Red Cross to Care International, they obviously want, they don't want to build a power plant or build a road. They want to do health and education. That was great, but it was too much money in health and education. So the money that the World Bank put together, their trust fund, then after one year had to go to infrastructure. Nobody was actually financing sufficiently infrastructure, especially in the regions outside the capital. And my team created a framework so that we could actually know have the numbers in place to allocate the money to the right locations and the right sectors. What's, um, I mean, with the current coronavirus problem, What's happened now to lending? Do you, is it in a waiting period? And then uh, a few months from now, you see that there'll be an explosion of need or you know, how are you guys at the World Bank mm -hmm. looking at the situation? How are you going to pivot? Yeah, 
No, excellent question, um, Richard. And obviously, I'm not at the headquarters, so I don't have all the detailed insight of the latest developments. However, well, the World Bank has already mobilized a lot of resources to countries. Um, and we, we obviously, countries are in need, in great need, both in terms of their health systems, but uh, and to some even who are not yet in a, in a fragile situation in terms of Corona, they still need to, to get ready. But uh, almost every country is affected economically and some severely, especially in our key time countries, including and especially in Africa. So that's a given now that almost everybody is now flat out to help wherever it's possible and to accelerate what used to be a project preparation of could be um, eight to 12 months is now less than eight to 12 weeks in many cases. Um, with um, with obviously some, some questions of things that need many two things adjust over time, but so critical to be quick. Speed is now as important as, as anything else in this critical time. Also just to signal to others that um, you can maintain core economic activities and you can keep paying your teachers and, and nurses and, and many other core functions of, of any society and economy. So, um, so yeah, there's, um, uh, and, and then the re you might wonder how is it possible to be that quick? Part of the reason is not just that World Bank is actually good, pretty good in crisis and then in streamlining everything and really getting to task, but also we have a number of projects in many countries, almost any country, where we can actually then piggyback onto. So assuming you had a health project in Kenya already, um, then you can make an amendment and then channel additional resources for a particular corona prevention, to use that as an example. So yeah, no, World Bank already has projects going that keep every week there will a project being submitted to our board of directors and they will uh, and they have all been approved on a streamlined basis. And, um, and that will still be, that will shape probably the whole calendar year of our engagement. Even though we should not forget many other things that are still critical and they need to get ready for post-corona life at the same time. Do you fund um, scientific research or is that the purview of other agents and you just directly fund more entrepreneurial efforts or relief efforts or things? Yeah, no, so first, there's often been made this, this separation a bit between relief and development. Uh, it applies to natural disasters like the one in, in, in after the tsunami I referred to, but it may apply now as well in, in Corona. So there are many UN agencies, obviously WHO and others that, that have a stronger role in the relief uh, phase and uh, the World Bank is the, the player more for the systematic support, but there's, there's obviously transitions and when it comes also to, to the core stock taking and the core adding up of the numbers, um, that's always when we have some role in any phase of, of development. And often, sometimes we have, and I was leading myself, a few of them called emergency loans, but these are more economic operations, typically, to make sure countries can can back on their can get back on their feet uh, more quickly um, after something struck or some moment occurred, and that it could be like the current health crisis we are facing. In terms of research and development, so there's two parts to this. One, and um, we do have dedicated science and research projects, especially those who then think of how you convert research into actually business and uh, create applied research. And um, we have a lot of, and the country I cover now, Kazakhstan has such a, a research to business project, if you may, may call it. At the same time, um, we also, as I mentioned, the World Bank has a full 
you know, pillar of, uh, of knowledge is that, you know, we have, I think, the most highest concentration of especially PhD economists, including health economists, that cover a lot of ground. And that part of our dialogue is around, you know, that I wouldn't call it core research, but research informed and policy relevant analysis. And there often we work also with think tanks and researchers. I'm, I'm for example, still very close with a professor at the University of Nairobi, who is uh, one of the leading Africans in terms of the technolo technology revolution and transformation. So there are a lot of relationships the World Bank has. It's in, again, my field much more in the economic field. I think that we have more traditional strengths, including the universities in the US, than say in health or um, other sectors. But we have a number of, you know, also doctors in our staff and, and educators and engineers. So we have a whole spectrum and they all have their own relationship and engagements with the research community. Very good, Wolfgang. What's the best way for people to find out more about the World Bank in general and if they see a need on um, their community or, you know, their area that they think would qualify for a loan um, or to look at projects and maybe somehow contribute? Where do they go? Okay. okay. The simple thing is our standard website, worldbank.org. Um, as mentioned, the loans are the, the core, almost all of the loans the World Bank is giving is government loans. So it's all about some of the participation through some of the process of, of government and uh, of, of, because they are the shareholders of the World Bank. As I mentioned, there's also, we have a private sector arm. So if you're a business that, um, that is thriving and or, or is, you know, it's various stages. Obviously, World Bank is not an, a, what you could call an early stage investor. There are others who are, are better than us, but it's still a long-term investor in core businesses and a wide spectrum, it's called IFC. So if you go to ifc.org, or if you uh, check out the IFC office in your country, again, IFCs are also in almost every country and co-located with the World Bank, we are one broad family, then those would be the counterpart to connect with. Very good, Wolfgang. Thank you for coming, and I appreciate uh, all your knowledge. And like I said, the World Bank is, uh, is, you know, is there to help, so uh, I appreciate what you do. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate for having me and all the best. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.